Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Stephen Hansen, Associate Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Selena Koch, Executive Editor. Karen Koch-Tusman, Senior Editor. Steve Osden, Washington Editor. On this week's pod, a successful week for the neurodegeneration space as Biogen and Amelix notch clinical and regulatory wins, growing pressure on the Biden administration to curb outbound U.S. investments, and leveraging industry goodwill to help local nonprofits. But first, today's podcast is brought to you by the BioCentury Bay Helix East-West Biopharma Summit, scheduled for November 14th to 16th in Redwood City, California, plus two bonus days of virtual one-to-one partnering meetings. This VIP event brings together U.S., European, and Asian biotech executives to debate globalization strategies. You can register to attend on our website, biocenturyeastwest.com. You can also participate right now by completing the Biocentury East-West Industry Survey. Results of this survey will be included in a special scene setter report that Biocentury is preparing for the summit. There will also be a plenary panel on this topic chaired by Biocentury Editor-in-Chief Simone Fishburn. Please take the survey at biocenturysurvey.com. We hope to see you in November at the summit. I'd like to start with Selena to talk about what was a fairly action-packed week for the neurodegeneration field. Um, and maybe we could start with the Alzheimer's data from partners Esai and Biogen. Selena, what do we know and what are the potential implications for the broader class of anti-amyloid antibodies? Sure, sure. Uh, just to start off this discussion, I think it's Good to acknowledge the importance of Azai's data with respect to the amyloid hypothesis, because it's been 25 years of failed trials, or more recently, inconclusive trials with Adahelm. And the field's finally at a tipping point. I think it would be difficult now for critics of the amyloid hypothesis to say that clearing these deposits from the brain has no clinical utility. We're starting to see a picture emerge that's fairly consistent of the magnitude of the benefit. It's quite modest, but there does seem to be benefit. If you look at the one trial from Adahelm that succeeded, if you look at Azai's data, and if you look at data from Eli Lilly, from the phase two proof of concept from Denonimab, they're all very consistent on the clinical dementia rating scale that FDA likes. They all produced a similar slowing of decline in the 22 to 27% range. Is that clinically meaningful? I mean, there's debate about around that for sure. I asked Azai what their argument is for that being clinically meaningful, because I have asked this question to many doctors many times over the years, and I've always gotten the answer that the minimal amount of change on this rating scale that they would need to see to be able to detect it as a change would be at least one point, if not two, right? And so I asked Azai, you know, how did you arrive at what you powered this trial to see, which was about a third of a point, or maybe it was 0.37 or 38 points. And they said, you know, they did this in consultation with FDA and the literature and whatnot. And they really emphasized that what's a clinically meaningful minimal difference for an individual over time is different from a group statistic. So if everyone in your population got that minimal one-point change, it would still not be a highly effective drug, but everybody would have got some benefit, right? But this indication is is huge. We're talking millions of patients. They're highly heterogeneous. Nobody really expects these first class of drugs to 
work in everybody. So, so to me, that, that brings up two real um, important questions. The first is, when are we going to find out what the distribution is? Because it's hugely different if everybody or nearly everybody got a, a benefit that's really almost difficult to detect, you know, versus a small group that got a huge benefit and everybody else got no benefit or even conceivably got worse. So that that's one question. And the other one is, how confident are you when you're basically saying this is as good as it gets? I mean, is it possible that another MAB could provide substantially better benefit than this one? Okay, well, AZI is going to report detailed data at CTAD, uh, which I believe happens in November. So that at least more color on the data will be coming. I don't know how granular they're going to get with respect to patient level data. So all three of these new generation antibodies and gantanurumab, which is the next one that's going to read out, that one's from Roche. That one's been around for a long time. It's failed phase three trials in the past, but the difference is they're now testing at a five times bigger dose and they have clinical data showing at that dose, you get dramatic reduction of amyloid in the brain. So donanumab, gantanurumab, aduhalm, and lecanumab, they all clear out amyloid from the brain much more strongly than anything that came before them with a large fraction of patients becoming amyloid negative. So I think with an antibody, it's going to be hard to do much better with respect to the mechanism of how they work, which leads me to think that this is probably about as good as we get. I mean, they might get slightly better. There are other mechanisms. So AC Immune, who has been in this space forever, they're making vaccines. And so that's a immune-mediated process. And I don't know if there's any basis for that being better, but I think the class picture of, of the magnitude of benefit is kind of emerging. Selena, one of the things that we've talked about before is around the idea that combinations could be a path to benefit. But in order to even have a combination you can consider, you need something that's available, some standard of care, right? Can you talk about how the latest steps could maybe pave a path toward combinations? Okay. But the first step on that path is your assumption that these will be standard of care. So for that to happen, we're going to need to see them covered. So the Alzheimer's population is just by their age, they're almost all a Medicare population. And right now, there are coverage with evidence developments requirement that have limited coverage by Medicare. So if for Adahelm, which was approved under accelerated approval based on its ability to lower amyloid levels in the brain, it's only covered in the context of randomized controlled trials. That same NCD says, okay, if your molecule gets full traditional approval, you're still evidence requirements, but they're a little different. Like you can collect registry data in the course of routine care. It's like there's a little more wiggle room there, but to really become standard of care and almost by default become a combination partner because it's now background medication, I think CMS would have to reevaluate and drop some of those requirements. And that's what people are telling me they think is likely to happen just because you really can't end up in this situation where you have the data is there and there's full approval, where you now have one government agency doing something very different than, than the other. Stephen, you talk to investors about this. Yeah, I think that's where th that question of whether it's clinically meaningful or not, I think that's also a question that I think some were saying they were debating, you know, even internally, like, is this something that 
CMS is going to have to weigh, you know, are they going to have part of this determination or part of this decision on whether or not to adjust their existing NCD? Is the clinically meaningfulness of the data of this first drug going to impact that? Or do you have to wait for another drug to come? You know, how much is enough kind of, I guess, in their mind to, to make that change? Does denenumab have to be similarly positive? Because it's a class, right? This is a class decision. It's across the class of antibodies. So it's not like CMS is making it on a drug by drug basis. Well, well, look, you know, you, everybody, so everybody dances around and, and makes out as if it's all based on the medicine in, in a vacuum. I don't believe that's true. Look, it's the price. If the price for this drug comes in low enough, then that's going to change the coverage policies, I think. And especially if new formulations come in where it can be administered sub-Q and it can be covered under Medicare Part D, that's also going to change the whole equation. And I think that you'll see that CMS will find some way to change their thinking on the requirements for evidence collection if they believe that the pricing impact isn't going to be huge. I totally agree. Yeah, this discussion of clinical meaningfulness cannot happen without the price discussion um, because, you know, they, they powered for the minimum and patients have no good options right now. So something that, so their point change was 0.45. So say 45% of patients got the minimum detectable change and the rest got nothing. Well, that's not great, but that's 45% of patients having some option today that when they have no options. So yeah, that might be, FDA might be right in saying we need to give this option to patients, but depending on how much that's going to hurt the taxpayers, <laughs> you know, does come into this discussion of, well, how accessible should it be? And anyway, CMS, you know, they have other mechanisms too to limit. Adahelm's label was very broad, much broader than its clinical trial population. If that label is, you know, similarly broad, for lecanemab, CMS could say, okay, well, we'll cover, but we're only covering, you know, these certain patients that more closely reflect the trial population. Well, I, I know this is going to be something that we'll continue to come back to here, but I wanted to touch on another bit with you, uh, Selena, because obviously lecanemab data wasn't the only bright spot in the neurodegenerative space last week, because we also had FDA's approval of Amelix's AMX0035 for ALS. And so I wanted to ask you, is there a read-through for other neurodegenerative drug developers here with this decision? I mean, there, there may be. Patients have been calling for regulatory flexibility uh, very loudly for a long time. FDA has said it is appropriate to apply maximum flexibility in a disease like this. It's not only rare, it's fatal uniformly, and there's no good treatment options. And so now we have an example of what regulatory flexibility can look like. It's not the only way to be flexible, but it does show that, that FDA is willing to accept one phase two trial with imperfect data that the agency itself said is not highly persuasive, so long as it's supported by some what they call confirmatory evidence. So I think that does bode well. For other ALS therapies, and not just ALS, but the neurodegeneration space in general, because all of these are devastating diseases with no good treatment options. And the other thing in the Amalek situation is that they have 
a trial that people believe or hope will be definitive ongoing. So they didn't get accelerated approval, which would be contingent on them doing a follow-up trial to confirm clinical benefit. But it's acting in a, in a way like that. And I think that's what really gave FDA the confidence that they could approve this, right? And they got this unusual agreement from Amlix that if that trial definitively doesn't show clinical benefit, that they would withdraw the drug from the market. It remains to be seen whether that really happens. And what do we mean by definitive? Definitive is so debatable. Yeah. 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 No, I think there's going to be a lot of controversy about that, interpreting the results of that trial. But I I do think that that gave FDA the confidence here. And if, if others are looking at what kind of like roadmap there is for getting other drugs with similarly inconclusive or contested data approved for neurodegenerative diseases, having an ongoing trial that people believe may provide definitive results is definitely going to be something that's going to help them get FDA approval. Good. Great. Well, thank you, Selena. No, they're both really, really interesting topics that I'm sure we'll, we'll stay on top of. Um, Steve, I wanted to uh, turn to you next and talk a little bit about you were writing about the growing pressure on on the Biden administration with regard to restricting outbound investments from the U.S. So can you just explain a little bit of kind of where the pressure is coming from and what those concerns are? So the pressure is coming from Congress. There is bipartisan support for the administration to impose restrictions on outbound investment. It's really aimed at China. And it's not limited to things that are specifically related to military defense industries. There's a general sense in Congress and in the Biden administration that China is has kind of gone from being a competitor to being an adversary, and that the United States shouldn't be investing and shouldn't be allowing U.S. entities to invest in companies or in entities in China that are going to help China build up its capacity in what are considered critical areas and the life sciences, biotechnology, biomanufacturing, synthetic biology, all fit within that category. I'm not taking a view as to whether or not any of those positions are correct or not, but I'm trying to explain what kind of what the motivations are. The um, House of Representatives actually passed legislation this summer that would have set up uh, an outbound investment screening regime. It was ultimately not incorporated in the legislation that passed both houses of Congress this year. But members of Congress sent a letter to um, to Biden last week saying, "Look, we want these outbound investment curbs, and we're urging you to do it by executive order. Don't wait for Congress to do it." It's kind of unusual for Congress to say, "You know, Mr. President, please do something." Don't wait for us. But that's exactly what they've done. And I think that there's a good chance that this was coordinated with the White House. It was intended to send a signal that the executive order that that is being written in the White House, that has been drafted in the White House, has congressional support. It's still not a done deal. We don't know whether it's going to be released, and we certainly don't know what is going to be in it. But I think that this makes it more likely that it's going to happen. Is is one way to think about this essentially being like a reverse CFIUS? where you have this uh, way of screening for inbound sort of foreign investments, but here you're sort of essentially doing doing the opposite where you're screening for any companies that are looking to invest externally? That seems to be what it is. Again, you know, nobody knows really what is going to be in this executive order. If it tracks with the legislation that, that the House passed, yes, that's what it would be. And within that 
within that general framework, it, it could be um, wider or, or narrower, you know, and again, we don't know what's going to be there and we don't know whether the executive order would be all that happens or you could see a scenario like with CFIUS on inbound investment screening. It started with an executive order that was narrow and then later Congress passed legislation and created something that was much broader. The Rhodium Group, a, a think tank that specializes in studying issues related to, to China and Chinese economy and technology, says that if the legislation that passed the House this summer had been enacted, that 43% of the U.S. investment in China over the last two decades wouldn't have happened. In other words, it would have, it would have had a huge effect and would really, going forward, lead to a kind of decoupling of the U.S. and Chinese economies in a, in a much more substantial way than, than is envisioned by anything that's in the law right now. And again, we just don't know. We don't know whether it's going to happen. And if it happens, we don't know how narrowly focused it's going to be, whether it's going to be something as broad as what passed the Congress this summer, or whether it would be something far more limited. Well, thanks, Steve. And you know that obviously not the only thing happening in Washington related to biopharma. The user fees just made it in under the wire as well. So can you just maybe quickly explain to us a bit about how the deal came together? So uh, President Biden signed the temporary spending bill that reauthorizes user fees for FDA for prescription drugs, generic drugs, medical devices, and biosimilars. As you said, it came down to the wire. It was just a few hours before those user fees were going to expire. It was a so-called clean reauthorization, meaning that there were no policy reforms associated with it, reforms to accelerated approval, diagnostics regulation, pediatric cancer R&D, and a, a whole bunch of other things, including dietary supplements, cosmetics, were all scuttled. And they were scuttled because Senator Richard Burr uh, insisted on a clean bill, and the Democratic majority in the Senate is so razor thin that basically any member of Congress raising, any senator, I'm sorry, raising objections could slow it down to the extent that um, it would put reauthorization at risk. So that's what happened. Members of Congress from both parties who worked really long and hard on these policy reforms were pissed. And they, and they made it clear that they were pissed. And they also said that they're going to try to get some or as much of the legislation that they've been working on included in a spending bill that almost certainly is going to be passed in December. So there are ongoing negotiations to try to get, again, the accelerated approval, diagnostics, pediatric cancer, and, and a whole bunch of other things that were in the bill that passed the House and the one that passed the Senate Health Committee to try to get those into legislation that's going to be passed in December. Great. And then very briefly, Steve, before I let you go, um, I think you did want to get a quick word in on actually one of the Nobel Prize winners that was announced today. Oh, yeah. So that's really cool. Okay. I think it, it's really rare. I've been doing this a long time for an interview that I do to really kind of change my outlook on life. This interview was Fonte Pebo, who just won the Nobel Prize for medicine. I did this interview with him in 2015. And in a way, it really did affect me really deeply. As a result of it, I've come deeply fascinated with prehistory and with emerging discoveries about the variety of humans that existed, coexisted, and intermingled, and how they really shaped who we are today. His work on assembling the Neanderthal genome 
was amazing, you know, and it's amazing to think that all of us, except for people who uh, live in Africa and, and have had their descendants entirely from Africa, everybody else has got Neanderthal DNA in us. And in some ways, it's affected human health and, and maybe behavior. He discovered a completely new species, the Denisovans, and he traced their DNA um, in human populations from Tibet and in, including um, some attributes that give uh, people that live at very high altitude the ability to, to live in places where there's thin oxygen and also to, uh, to Polynesia and to, to Australia. So it's really fascinating. And he's also a really interesting person. And I think it's just a, a tremendous thing that he got the Nobel Prize. And I tweeted out part of the interview that I did with him on TV in 2015. So if anybody looks in my Twitter feed, they can watch a little bit of that. Sure. Excellent. Yeah, we'll definitely go to Steve's Twitter handle at Steve Usden one. And congratulations to uh, Dr. Pabo on the Nobel Prize for Medicine. Um, last, but certainly never least, we're going to come to Karen. You wrote a very interesting piece about a nonprofit organization called Life Sciences Cares. Can you kind of fill us in on who they are and kind of what their aim is? Sure. So Life Sciences Cares is the brainchild of Rob Perez, a general Atlantic. It came to him in the middle of the night. That's how a lot of good ideas come to be. And basically what it does is it harnesses the life sciences industry in particular, all the sort of small, medium-sized companies that make up our clusters and mobilizes them to do good in their communities. and taps into that, you know, a lot of people go into life sciences, drug development, et cetera, because they want to help patients, they want to have a positive impact. But as we all know, the timescales for that are years, if not decades, from the point of view of medicines development. And so it creates an opportunity for folks to have impact in an immediate sense in their local communities. And so there's four hubs right now. Boston was the original one, uh, started back in 2016, and since then there have been hubs in Philadelphia, San Diego, and the Bay Area opened. Next up is New York City, so that's coming up, and there's even maybe rumblings about what would it look like to do something like this in Europe. What's really cool about it is that they trust in the expertise of local partners, of local nonprofits. They put out a call for applications, they invite organizations to apply. And each hub has a, a board of governors um, of sorts that uh, will make those decisions. And once these organizations are selected, there's, of course, the giving of monetary grants to help power what they do. But there's also the opportunity for hands-on volunteering. So organizing folks from local companies to come, say, help manage a vaccine clinic in the Tenderloin in San Francisco or put together food distribution boxes, for example. But there's also these opportunities for what they call thought partnerships, where they can find synergies between what these organizations are doing and what the life sciences industry can build, bring to bear. One example of that that's neat and local around here is the creation of the Farmworker Equity Express, which is a partnership with Alas, a local nonprofit that serves the farm worker community um, on the coast side of the peninsula, and Life Sciences Cares, where they're they're retrofitting a double decker bus uh, to be a center for telemedicine and online tutoring, and using, for example, the expertise of 
the local industry, not just in terms of what it might take to do telemedicine, but also, you know, Genentech runs these big commuter shuttles. And so their transportation team came out and helped with the design and conception of that. It's this really great way for people in the life sciences industry to get involved at any level. And so if you're a local leader in town and uh, have the funds to make bigger contributions, you can take part in the the board of directors or the broader, there's a board of advisors that people can participate in, but you can also participate at a corporate level. They have packages for different sized companies with ranges of contribution amounts. And what that allows you to do is basically externalize a corporate social responsibility engine. So oftentimes a small biotech startup doesn't have someone in-house to think about, you know, how can the company give back and interact with the local community? And so tapping into Life Sciences Cares enables you to build that into the fabric of your company from the very beginning and scale it as you grow. And one of the things that, you know, came up in our back to school issue was that the next generation of leaders is motivated by making impacts on the world that go beyond just developing medicines. And so I think there's increasing recognition that to engage your workforce for team development, for just general positive feelings about working in your company, having a way to tap into doing good in the broader community is a great thing to do. And of course, you know, even if your company doesn't get involved, you as an individual employee can always sign up to work at the uh, at the food bank, at the care package assembly day, all of those things. And there's also some local fundraisers coming up for a bunch of the hubs here in San Francisco. There's one November 3rd. And we've got all of this in the story, which is in front of the paywall. So anyone can check it out. Great. Excellent. Thank you, Karen. As you said, you can find that at one of the latest feature stories on biocentury.com. So that's all we have for today's podcast. So thank you all for joining us. All of BioCentury's podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcasts. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education.